That's the obstacle. It's a three-piece monkey, literally only three pieces. As I'm watching the show, I'm looking at these kids going like, kid, you have a head, a torso, and legs. Just look down. You can win. It's so easy. But this was the one thing. This was the one simple thing that kid after kid after kid could not figure out. You see, for these kids, there was only one way to get through this course, only one way to get through the obstacles to see the reward at the end of the journey. And in the same way that there is only one way through this journey for them in Legends of the Hidden Temple, there's only one way through the journey for us to reach the reward in our lives. If you view your life as one long journey, then there is something that must happen in your life in order to reach this blessed, amazing reward at the end of your journey rather than disqualification. Now, I guarantee you this morning when you woke up, you did not think that you were going to see an illustration where Jesus and legends of the hidden temple are used. So let me just say, you're welcome. That's a happy birthday moment to me, okay? You guys are welcome. So this series, it has been awesome to see what God is doing, and it's so timely because we are living in a day and an age where truth, real objective truth, is under attack. And all of humanity is kind of teetering on this line. Like if you could imagine a a tightrope, and they're trying to balance themselves with two things. On one side, you have people trying to say that everybody's truth out there is the truth. And so they're balancing that one side. And then they have the other side. On the other side of the tightrope is this this lie that says that we must tolerate all things. And the funny thing is, and we're starting to see it play out in culture, that these two ideologies, they cannot coexist. It is not possible. You cannot tolerate all things simultaneously and say that people should live how they want to live, that they should be able to qualify what is morally right and morally wrong for themselves. Because eventually... Eventually, due to the hardness of our own hearts and the deceitfulness of sin that dwells within us, somebody, somewhere, is going to get their toes step on. And in, in an instant, I mean, you see this happen all the time. They hold these beliefs, but in an instant, there's a deeper, deeper belief down in the heart that starts to well up. It was written on their hearts. It starts to well up, and it comes out. What is that belief? That belief is that there is right. Yeah. There is wrong. Yeah. That wrong things should be punished and right things would be rewarded. That's kind of what Dustin talked about last week. So today, to kind of build on that thought process, we're going to talk about the one who makes the final call, the one who at the end of all of our lives, as Dustin said, will stand before and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or, and much more terrifyingly, he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. I'll give you a quick second. It says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By the end of today's message, we will have heard this verse a thousand times. I'm praying that it gets down into the marrow of our very bones so that it transforms the way that we live. But before we do that, we need to pray. Lord Jesus, our prayer is, God, would you transform us? We're asking, God, as we sit under your word, Lord, would your word bear its weight on our souls? 
Lord Jesus, would you show us that you are the way, the truth, and the life? And and for people in here who don't know you, Lord, I pray that that's a first-time realization. And for those of us who've been walking with you, Lord, would you show us, raise in our hearts the areas where we still don't believe that? Like, yes, we believe that for our salvation, but there's still certain things in our lives where we are still in need of you to reveal yourself so that we can walk more deeply with you. God, we love you. We pray that you would do this in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thanks for your grace. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to do today as we're looking at this scripture is we're going to see who is it that Christ, what, who does Christ claim himself to be? In this verse we just read, Jesus says he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He is making this claim that there is no way, absolutely no way to heaven outside of him. There's no way to see the Father and reach the eternal bliss in the presence of our all-satisfying God unless you encounter the living Jesus and you encounter what it means to be forgiven by Christ. These are big, intense claims that Christ is making. I mean, seriously, like if you walked up to me, if you walked up to me one day and you're like, hey, John, I'm the way, I would be questionable about that. I'd be like, okay, well, maybe you need to get yourself some real professional help. Maybe you need to get on some of them strong medications to help you out. Unless, and this is a big unless, unless I saw you do something in your life to substantiate those claims. So first, I think we need to look at what the scripture says about who Christ Jesus says he is. This is going to be kind of a fly overview of what are the claims, the exclusive claims that Christ makes about himself. I know we might not pick up on every single individual one of these, but it's good to get an overview. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, he is the son of God. This high priest says, are are you the son of God? He says, you say that I am. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that he's the son of man, right? There was this prophecy in the book of Daniel that says the son of man is going to overflow governments. Jesus says he is that person. He says he's the giver of life in John 10, that there's not anybody that, even Satan himself, could not snatch you out of the hand of God. He says that he's one with the Father in John 10. He says that he's the one who has authority to forgive sins in Mark 2. He says he's the bread of life in John 6. He says he's the good shepherd in John 10. He says he's the true vine. This next one's a big one. He says, I am the great I am in John 8. He says he's the giver of living water in John 4. He says he's the light of the world, the one who's come and is pushing back the darkness in John 8. He says he's the future judge, the one that we're all going to stand in front of one day and give an account. He says he's the lamb of God in John 1. He says that he's the one who's going to come and he's going to bring the Holy Spirit and baptize us in the Holy Spirit in Luke 3. And then then these claims get huge. He says he is the door of salvation in John 10, that he's the savior in John 3, and that he's the Messiah in John 4. These are massive claims that our Christ is making. Now, Dustin touched on this this, earlier in the series, but um, since Jesus made these claims, there's only a few things that could actually be true of Jesus. He made these great claims. So what does that mean about Christ? It means that he might be a lunatic. You'll you'll see this in, in culture all around us, that people would say that Christ was either a lunatic, a crazy man, somebody with these ginormous illusions of grandeur, People might say that he's a liar, somebody who's trying to deceive the whole world and make as many followers as you could possibly have, never really doing anything of lasting value. Some people might say he's a legend, right? 
Some might say he never existed, and, and people just over the centuries have made up great stories about him, and these are just great fantasies that a few hundred generations of collective imagination have made somebody greater than life. Or he actually is the one he says he is, which is the Lord. Because think about it. If he were crazy, we shouldn't follow him. If he were a liar, we should condemn him. And if he were a legend, we couldn't actually follow him. But if he's Lord, if he's Lord, he demands our attention and our commitment. So these enormous claims that Christ is making, how do we actually test something like this? I think that there's a few ways to do this, but, but some of the ways to substantiate the claims of Christ is, first, you must look at his life, the work of his life. What did he do? And the second thing you need to do is ask those around him what they thought of him. That's how you would substantiate anybody's claim. What did the people say that walked with him every single day of his life? I think the first one that pops into my head when I think about, okay, who knew Jesus is his very own Family. If we're going to substantiate the claims of Christ, we have to look at who his family members said he was, and most particularly, his mom and his brothers. Now, Mary, which, by the way, Mary is one of the most controversial figures in the church, like it, but I'm not talking about all that stuff. I'm talking about how she just confuses the heck out of me. Mary confuses me more than any other person in the entire Bible. Like, think of this, this lady's life. She's a young girl. And she encounters one of the most mind-bending, like literally mind-shattering miracles of God, the Immaculate Conception. She meets angels. Her husband starts to speak to angels. She experienced all of this incredible stuff. And then she meets up with her, her I think it's her cousin, her friend, um, with Elizabeth and with Zachariah. And she sees how God is working in the womb of Elizabeth. Of Elizabeth. And then... Mary literally births the very son of God. And there's this baby who is this little child in a manger, which, by the way, on this one night, it's not a silent night. I don't know where we got that idea that this baby Jesus was a silent night. Christ literally cried as a child, needed his diaper to be changed. But that baby... That baby sitting there in that cradle crying out is simultaneously crying to his mother and holding the entire universe together by the word of his power. That is insane. And she experienced all of this. And as Christ is getting older, somehow, some way that just absolutely blows my mind, she forgets everything that she'd been told and everything that she had experienced. Because Jesus starts to preach the gospel he goes out and he starts to spread this message that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then this happens in Mark 3, verse 20 and 21. It says, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out and they seized him. Why did they go out and seize him? For they were saying, He is out of his mind. So that was Mary's story. Thankfully, we'll see the end in a second. But the Bible also tells us of Jesus' own brothers. His brothers did not believe him, but not for long. Something changed. And I think the thing that changed is that they started to see the miracles that Jesus was doing all around the ancient world, most notably, by the way, of which is the resurrection. I mean, think of that. Jesus' own brother, James. James did not believe that his brother was the Christ, which when you say Christ, it's the long-awaited Messiah. 
He watched, he stared, and he watched as his brother died. And that would have settled for him some very mixed emotions, emotions of both sorrow and of confirmation that his brother Jesus was a madman. But then three days later, something happened for James. James' heart and his mind and his life were completely undone. His belief structure shatters as he sees something happen. He sees his brother walk through the door. He saw his brother on that Roman torture device that was reserved for the most vile sinners. And then James sees his own brother walk through the door three days later. And that would have changed everything for James. It certainly changed everything for Mary. And it changes everything for us. But there's more. This is what's so cool. When we read the scriptures, there's more to substantiate the claims of Christ Let me just list a few more of these miracles so that we can see that over and abundantly, over and over again, Jesus, he makes these claims known to be true, that he was the son of God, that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life, and that there is no other way. There are so many reasons to believe that Christ is who he says he is. The first one is this. You know, we did a a list of Christ's claims. Let's do a list of the miracles of Jesus. He turns water into wine in John 2. He cures a nobleman's son in John 4. He hauls an enormous amount of fish. After these professional fishermen could not get any fish, Christ Jesus pulls out fish in Luke 5. He casts out demon in Mark 1. He cures Peter's mom and so many others of all of these different kinds of sickness. Not only that, he raises a widow's son from death. He stops a storm by the word of his power, literally speaking to a storm, and and creation obeys him. He cures blindness. He heals mute men. He feeds 5,000 in Matthew 14. And just to kind of one-up himself, he does it again just a few (laughs) bit later. He raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And the list goes on and on, so much so that the scripture says that if every book said the the, the miracles of Jesus, not every book could not contain the amazing glory of Christ. And the good news is this. There were witnesses around to see it. Like, like if you were there when Jesus fed the 5,000, you could, you could read that story and go, no, no, I was there. He didn't feed us. There was baskets full of bread already, but there were witnesses there who saw that Christ did these miracles. So Christ's claims of who he was were substantiated both by him and for the watching world. Now, this message of the gospel, that Christ is who he says he is, this is an offensive message. And it has to be offensive. Like Jesus being the only way to heaven because by saying this, it's offensive because by saying this, Jesus, that he's saying he's the truth, the way, and the life, that nobody comes to the Father except through him, it means that he is excluding all people who don't come to him. And that's an offensive message. And in this kind of age of of tolerance that we're living in, like this is a carnal sin and we're so thankful that that, um, Jesus is the one who actually can say what is sin and what is not sin. But this week as I've been preparing this message, I've been thinking, man, you know, these are exclusive claims of Christ. There's no way around it. But is Christianity the only world religion that makes exclusive claims? I studied a lot of world religion in my undergraduate, and I had to go back and kind of refresh myself this past week. But the truth remains all world religions make exclusive claims. Even these ones that, that claim to be inclusive. They're only inclusive as long as you agree with them. And that's kind of natural, right? But we have to realize, we have to kind of 
move through all of the lies of our age and realize that everybody does this. Everybody makes exclusive claims. I mean, look at the media today. Like the, the, the kind of um, wording that I've seen is like, we hate Christians because Christians hate other people. Well, first off, we don't. And second off, like you are showing that you are intolerant by saying that I'm intolerant. Don't say that you're inclusive if just plain and simply you're not. Like, don't say that you're, you're inclusive if you're only inclusive to those who agree with you. Don't say that you're tolerant if you're only tolerant of those who have a like mind as you. Am I crazy? Like, are you guys experiencing this too? I feel like a crazy person at times. My point is this. Everybody on earth makes exclusive claims, and that's okay. But the problem is a lot of people don't understand it. And the same thing is true of every single major world religion today, even those that seriously would claim that at their very core, they are inclusive of all people. Take, for instance, um, Hinduism. Hinduism, 980 million people practice the Hindu religion. And they have a certain set of beliefs that you have to follow that in order to be a part of their group and their, their beliefs that there is one ultimate Brahman that comes in many different forms and that you if you, don't, if you don't believe in that and you don't believe in karma and you don't believe in reincarnation, what would they say? Well, you're not a Hindu. You're not part of our group. We would be excluded and we probably would be reincarnated as a germ or something. <laughs> Hinduism makes exclusive claims. Or what about Buddhism? Buddhism kind of touts itself as the most inclusive religion. And yet, for these 488 million people practicing Buddhism, they would say that there is no God, right? They say that there is no God and that there is no such thing as sin, that, that good and bad are okay and should be celebrated because at their core they are very human, which, by the way, sounds very good until I step up and punch you in your face. <laughs> Suddenly, you do wish that there is right and you feel like there should be wrong. It's good. It is good that there is right and it is good that there is wrong, that there's righteousness and that there is sin. But they would say that if you don't believe those two, if you believe that there's righteousness and there is sin, then you are not part of their group. If, if you say that, hey, I see that there's chaos all around the world and I see that same darkness and chaos indwelling me, I need somebody to rescue me out of this. If you said that, you would not be part of of their group. You'd be excluded from their group. Let's move on to the last major world religion, Islam. 1.9 billion people are Muslim, and they believe that you have to earn your salvation. You have to earn your way to heaven, and if you don't obey the, the teachings, uh, their articles of faith and their pillars of faith, then you are not a part of their religion, and you spend eternity in hell. You see, every single person in this world makes exclusive claims. And we know that every religion makes exclusive claims because every religion is made up of people. But I wanted to do a thought experiment. As I was studying, I came across this amazing article and it kind of triggered this for me. What if, <coughs> what if all roads actually did lead to heaven? Like, what would that be like? Like, what if, what if God was actually this big elephant in the sky and each religion is just a person with a blindfold on feeling a different part of the elephant and describing it for other people? What would this say about, about th this God? Like, what would that mean about the God of love? What would it say about God if all roads led to heaven? Now, I'm gonna read a pretty long quote. It's by a guy named Paul Rezkala. And he, he's a writer for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he's just got amazing... Um, articles that you can read on there. But he says this. I'll, I'll tell you when the quote is over. It's pretty long. 
He says, if Islam, Buddhism, and Zoroastrianism, and all other world religions are true paths to God, then why did God kill his son Jesus? Why did he kill his son, his son Jesus in order to make a way for men to come to him? Every, the very notion is absurd and insulting to God. It paints a portrait of a God who's just plain cruel. He sent Jesus into the world to live a miserable life of scorn and rejection and poverty and betrayal and humiliation and sorrow and ultimately torture and death in order to create a path whereby men can come to know him, yet all the while, he knew that following the five pillars of Islam or the noble eightfold path could accomplish the same thing. What a waste. Like Jesus' life, God's plan of salvation is completely in vain for the same result could be achieved by adhering to the tenets of any world religion. God is not only cruel, in this case, still going with the quote, God's not only cruel, but he's also incompetent for putting into effect the worst plan of salvation possible. But what do we know? God is not cruel. God is not incompetent. He would not kill his son needlessly. He, he would not put into effect a ridiculous, cruel plan of salvation for mankind. Hence, religious pluralism cannot be true. This argument doesn't exactly show that Christianity is true, but it does show you that all religions cannot be true. For if they were all true, then God would not be a God of love. Thank you, princess. God would not be a God of love. So he's saying like, it, it, this whole argument is not saying that, that Christianity is true. It is, however, saying that all religions absolutely cannot be true. There is no way God would be a monster to do that. But thankfully for all of us, we've already covered this fact that Christ is who he says he is, right? And so we know that Christianity is the way, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But got to ask the question, what sets Christianity apart from all of these other world religions? All other world religions, every major world religion, you have to work your way up the ladder to God. You have to try as hard as you can, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You have to have a, a certain level of enlightenment. You have to have, kind of tip the scales in your favor to get God to love you. You have to be good enough to kind of have your good things outweigh your bad things. And all of us sinners in here just look at it and we go, I cannot do that. Every other world religion looks the same, and there's a reason, because all of these other religions are very deeply, deeply human in their assumptions, but not with Christianity. It's not the way of our faith, because Christianity was not what? It was not thought up by man. This is the story that God has crafted and created our faith has been crafted and creating by, by a being who is so unfathomably, unfathomably greater than us that only a God uh, that is so big could come up with this. Every other religion has a hero. Like, here's the differences. Every other religion has a hero that saves the day. He's like a war hero that's greater than life itself. Ours is one where the hero comes as a baby to a mother living in a backcountry, nowhere town in the Middle East. Our Savior is one where our Savior is hated and he's mocked and he's spit on and he doesn't ride to his death on a war horse, he rides to his death on a donkey and the scripture goes even further that when we look at Christ, there is nothing in his aesthetic that we should have looked at and said, man, Christ is amazing. It says that there was nothing about him that looked special. We've got this Americanized idea of Christ that he's this blonde hair, blue-eyed, jacked, chiseled jaw man. It's like, no, he's just... A Middle Eastern guy. 
Our God didn't create some story that mankind could have come up with. Our God made a God-sized story. What sets Christianity apart is that you and I know this. We could never work our way up to God, and God knew this fact through and through. And so what did he do? He came down to us. He puts on human flesh, and he lives just like us, yet without sin, and he dies for us. In every other religion, there's work to prove yourself to God. In ours, there is only the need to be silent and see how God works to prove how gracious he is toward us. Our faith is entirely different. And so Jesus makes this claim. It's a huge claim. I'm going to read it again. We're getting this scripture down into the marrow of our bones. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And as we said, this claim is offensive. It's an offensive message. But just like the the, the kids, the ridiculous kids with a three-piece monkey, if we don't get this right, we do not get the reward. So the statement that Christ just made, the, the kind of negative inverse of that statement that Jesus said would be that if we don't come to him, then there is no encountering of the Father, which means there is no encountering heaven. And so there's a lot at stake. Our lives, I know know the world around us is trying to make your life seem trivial. There is so much at stake if we don't get this right, if we don't believe him. Again, the, the, the gospel must be offensive. It's an offensive claim against humanity. And the scripture is clear that unless you go and you admit your need and your problem and come to Jesus, you won't be saved. Yeah. Hear me on this. Seriously, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He didn't come here so that you could be good and live a good life. He came to make dead people alive. But if you never come to Jesus... And you never bring your dead heart to him. He will never bring that life. And you will remain dead in your trespasses in sins. I'm going to read a really heavy scripture for us. It's one that, that should and rightly does make us squirm in our seats. It's this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12. <coughs> this is the evidence of righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels here it goes when he's revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a heavy scripture, man. Like talking about bringing vengeance down on people. Like, look, I know people don't generally like to talk about this stuff, 
This isn't how you build the cool, popular church in town, but trust me, trust me, if there were a train careening down the tracks to just blow me into oblivion, I would want to know about it. It's better to know and to be warned of reality than to be completely caught off guard at the end of your life. And death is interesting. As so many of us know, like there is literally no way of telling if all of us will make it back into this room next week. That, that's, a, that's a heavy truth. That there is a moment where death could sweep us away unexpected, unexpectedly. And for your sake and for my sake, I would rather have preached the entire counsel of God than to lightly sugarcoat these truths so that I could give you a feel-good message because ear-tickling is never helpful. This is the reality that God created. You see, this is a hard path to follow. And we see everywhere that it is easy to live for pleasure now and yet forfeit your place in the kingdom of God. As I said, look in the world, like look at it around us. There's a reason why everybody's trying to live their own truth because it's easier. And it feels better now to live the way that we want to, not realizing all the while as we live out that way, we are securing for ourselves destruction. And I think Jesus knew this when he says this in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, that it's difficult. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That scripture should make us shudder down in our souls. And it should give us a fire to be missional with our, our neighbors. Yeah. Side point. My friend, Corey, your pastor, he has a banner up in his home gym. Yeah, we're home gym bros, okay? Doesn't show at all. He's got a banner up in his, in his home gym. It says this, comfort is a slow death, prefer pain. Comfort is a slow death, prefer pain. I know that was talking about fitness, and I don't know exactly who wrote this, but I do know that they probably don't understand how much bigger that statement is than the brevity of this life. If we choose comfort over and over and over and we try to find our lives, we will ultimately lose it. You might be asking yourself now, though, as we've talked about all of this hard stuff, John, I, I get it. I know that Jesus is who he says he is, but how, how exactly does Jesus bring me to the Father? I love this term. I'll talk about it so many sermons in a row. You'll hear it until it's just drilled down into your head. It's this term, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is so important, and it's really important for us to continue to learn theological terms in our lives. What does a substitute do in your life? If, if you're in school, how many uh, our kids are over there? A substitute comes in and takes the place. They, they take your place, and this is what Christ does for us. It, Christ is the substitute for you. He takes your place. The wrath that you justly deserved in your life, Christ fully takes it. And what does he get in return? He doesn't get a high five in return. He gets all of our sins, but what do we get? The question is, is what we get in the gospel, is it just a clean slate? I don't think so. Just a clean slate, the forgiveness of Christ wouldn't be enough. That would actually be horrible. We would have to spend the rest of our lives trying to continue to work our way to God. But what happens? When our sins are forgiven, we get the full righteousness of Jesus. If you ask anybody out there, what's the gospel? They'll say that you get your sins forgiven. And that's awesome, right? But that's a half-truth. 
When Jesus atones for you and for me, when he becomes our substitute, he takes all the sin that we've ever had, every single one that we've ever done, everything we will ever do, and he takes that on himself, and we get all of his righteousness. So he starts to take our place. The penalty for our sin is paid. He substitutes himself. We get the reward that Christ justly deserved. We get perfect relationship with the Father. So now when God looks at you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see all the things that you did behind every locked door. He doesn't see all the ways that you treated people throughout your life. He doesn't see that one thing. When I say that sin and that one thing that pops up in your head, the worst thing you've ever done, God doesn't even see that. What does he see? What does he see when he looks at you now? He sees the work of Christ credited to you in your account. He sees you being credited with with walking on water and feeding 5,000 and seeing people healed and the sick being brought back to life. He sees you living perfect and holy and sinless. And that is the good news of the gospel. That God doesn't look down at us and see us. He sees Jesus. And what I love about the grace of God in Christ is it's not like he just paid 90% of our way, and then we've got the last 10 to just really prove it to God that we can do it. Christ Jesus paid it all. And we have nothing to prove to God Almighty. Jesus paid it all. And once you are atoned for, your sin is forgiven, cast as far as the east is to the west, you are free and sin no longer binds you. You have been given a new identity through the way, the truth, and the life, and you will be guaranteed with the Father for eternity. So today... If, if you decide this, if you decide that you want to follow after Jesus, accept and, and receive his forgiveness as your Savior, which, by the way, we're going to give you an opportunity to do in a second. If you do that, if you receive Christ, there are two major things that you will experience, one right now and the other for the rest of eternity. The one you experience now is Galatians 2.20. It says this, <coughs> I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So whatever it is you're going through right now, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, you are not alone because your life is sealed in Christ. You have a new strength a strength that you've never had before. And the circumstances of your life, all those terrible things that are happening, they don't get to dictate your happiness. You are in Christ. And when you come to know Christ as your Savior, it doesn't just change the now. That changes so much right now, but it, ex- it changes what you will experience throughout all of eternity. I mean, hear this scripture. I love this scripture. This, this just makes my heart beat harder when I think about what we're going to see one day as we're face to face with the living God. It says this in Revelations 21, Revelation 21, 7, 2 through 7. He says, and I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, feel this, church, feel this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And that sounds amazing, right? And it gets better. He says, I'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. And there will be no mourning 
There will be no crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. And he who, sorry, I can't even see. And he who seated on the throne said this, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I can't wait for that moment. He says, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's what awaits all of us. And if you want to come to Christ today, that is what awaits you. No death, no pain, no sorrow, only bliss in the presence of Christ. So let's recap. Let's tie a bow on our whole series that we've been in. First week, Dustin talked about what is truth, that there is actually objective truth in this life, and we better get it right Week two, he talked about who is God and, and, and how could a good God allow evil into this world? And we don't really have a, a, a complete and a whole answer, but what we do know is that because there is a good God, any amount of pain in this life has meaning and God has restoration for it. Yeah. Week three, we talked about sin and, and we, we talked about the fact that, that sin is not sin unless God is holy yeah. and God is perfect yeah. and sin cannot be in the presence of God. And so today... We speak about the one, the one who actually can bring us to the Lord, to, to God, completely whole, completely healed, completely sinless. If you're hearing a message like this today, you have, you have one of three responses. The first one is you can admit that you have a need for Jesus and you can go to him and he's got open arms for the most sinful, disgusting, vile sinners. And I know this because he saved me. And he can do the same for you. Second option is to reject him. That's your choice. And the third option is for all of us who are in the Savior is to look at our lives and see the areas where we need to submit further. And we need to look at this and say, Christ, you are the way to heaven. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's areas of my life that I'm living that I'm not fully submitted to you. We need to look at those and submit those to Jesus, knowing full well that he forgives us over and over and over. And it's his kindness, that that, that forgiveness that draws us to repentance. So right now what I'm gonna do I'm gonna pray for us. What I wanna do is in, I don't know if we have any space in the back, but I wanna, I wanna just give us an opportunity. If you're wanting to follow Jesus for the first time today, if we could have some of the pastors stand, if any of the community group leaders who want to pray with people, if you could stand and kind of meet up in this area and in this area, um, I wanna see maybe the Lord has some harvest today that we can be a part of. So let's all bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we trust you. God, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that you've given us a way to eternity where we can receive the reward, where one day we can hear these words, well done, my good and faithful service, not servant, not because we've done anything to deserve this, but because of the overflowing righteousness and mercy and grace of Jesus. God, I pray right now for anybody in, in our church that, hasn't accepted you. Lord, I pray that they would today commit. They would say, I, I was once dead in my sins and I can feel the weight and the disgustingness and the tragedy and the sorrow that my sin brings and I want to be forgiven of it and walk in Christ. If that's you, 
Keep your heads bowed. If that's you, would you raise your hand? If, if today you want to submit your life to Christ for the very first time, you don't need to be scared. We're not going to call you out in front of everybody. If that's you, hold it high, man. Be proud. Christ Jesus saves the vile sinners. And if any of us in this room, we just feel like there's areas where we're struggling, areas where we still need to see the grace of God just intervene in our lives and, and, and fill up our hearts. If that's you and there's something you really need to talk about, first off, if that's you, raise your hand so that I can pray for you specifically. I'm not gonna pray for you by name, but just specifically. If that's you, if you feel like there's areas of your heart where you need to recommit yourself to Christ, and praise God for you. That's courage right there. Thank you. Yeah. For the rest of us, man, we get to worship the King of glory. We get to submit ourselves to him and, and be so thankful and and just so at peace with the fact that it is settled, it is finished. We are sealed in Christ with the promised Holy Spirit, and that is good news. And so God, we praise you today. We praise you for your word. We thank you that you've given us your word, that we can sit under it. And we rejoice in you and worship you, God. Lord, we're all looking forward to that day when we're without pain and without sorrow and we're standing in your presence. Hold us fast, Lord. It's in your name we pray. So guys, thank you for today. If anybody does want to talk, we're going to have some people still standing around. Um, but man, can we all just, man, praise God for his goodness and his kindness. So, thank you.